Hello, and thanks for tuning in to The Sun Also Rises here on KPCG 101.3. I'm Jeremiah Jacques, and today we'll take a look at a remarkable story of destruction and revival. And I'll begin it with part of a quote from Ruel Hanks. He's a professor of geography at Oklahoma State University, and he said, This is the greatest human-induced ecological catastrophe in history. Worse than Chernobyl, Bhopal, Minamata, London's killer smog, and all the other disasters of the industrial age. This stands as a testament to the folly of myopic economic planning and the dangers of totalitarianism. End quote. Once again, that was Professor Ruel Hanks and what he was talking about, this greatest human-induced ecological disaster in history, was the destruction of the Aral Sea. The Aral Sea is technically a lake, and it's in a very dry part of Central Asia, right on the border of Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan. Throughout most of history, it was massive, with surface area just over 26,000 square miles. That's about the size of the state of West Virginia, or the nation of Sri Lanka. And that made it the fourth largest lake in the world. The Aral Sea was saline, but the salt content was low, just about 10 grams of salt per liter. So it was rich in all kinds of freshwater and saline fish. It had particularly abundant populations of bream, carp, trout, flounder, and sturgeon. Records from 1957 show that the Aral Sea produced more than 48,000 tons of fish that year. So this lake was a major hub of life and a major source of food. The Aral Sea was losing millions of gallons of water each year to evaporation and seepage. But it was fed by Central Asia's two great rivers, the Amu River and the Sir River. If you look at the volumes, these two rivers together were delivering an average of more than 14 cubic miles of water into the RLC each year. So if you imagine a cube of water with each side measuring 14 miles long, it's tough to visualize such a huge cube of water, but that's how much the two rivers were delivering to the RLC every year. And it was enough to balance out the evaporation and seepage losses. So it kept the water level steady. So that was the case for thousands of years. The Aral Sea was a massive, thriving lake. A vast oasis in the middle of Central Asia's very arid and even desertified regions. But in the 1920s and 30s, the Soviet Union expanded into Central Asia and the RLC became part of the USSR. At first, the Soviets kept things basically as they were because they depended heavily on the fish that they were able to take from the Aral. So towns were thriving along its shores to support the fishing industry. And the data shows that there were about 60,000 jobs there in fishing and related industries. But before long, the Soviets became obsessed with something more lucrative than fish, something that they called beloye zoloto. That translates to white gold. And that's what the Soviets often called 
cotton. They were obsessed with cotton and decided to start growing a long-stemmed variety of it in the areas near the ROC. This long-stemmed variety of cotton requires a great deal of water. So to grow it, the Soviets decided to divert water from those two rivers, the Amu and the Sir. One of the major canals that they built, the Karakum Canal, was 850 miles long, and it was taking three cubic miles of water from the Amu River every year. So here again, you'd have to imagine a gigantic cube of water with each side three miles long. That's how much water the Soviets were taking from this river each year before it could get to the Aral Sea. And then they also began siphoning a great deal of water off of the other river, the Seer. Before this, the Seer was delivering about five cubic miles of water into the Aral annually. But by 1961, that number was down to zero. The Soviets were not satisfied to divert just some of the water away from the Seer but they actually took all of it. So these are major interventions, and it didn't take long for this to start having serious effects on the Aral Sea. By 1974, the Aral was getting only two cubic miles of river water each year, and the Soviets saw that this was reshaping the ecosystem in a terrible way, but they wanted more of that white gold. So instead of reevaluating their policies, they doubled down. They kept taking more and more river water, and by 1989, the Aral was getting just one cubic mile of water each year. One cubic mile, down from what had been more than 14 cubic miles in the year 1960. So just in 30 years, the volume had been cut by about 93%. So it was just a trickle, really, that was left going into the Aral. And the result of this was that the Aral Sea was rapidly shrinking. I'll just read a bit here from the Association for Asian Studies. They write, The Soviet obsession was to produce white gold at any cost. Incredibly, although the losses to the Aral were quite evident by the mid-1960s, Soviet planners continued to increase the acreage devoted to cotton production well into the 80s. The majority of these increases were not achieved by switching land to cotton from another crop, but by bringing additional land into production. Thus, yet more water was extracted from the feeder streams, compounding and accelerating the Aral's retreat. End quote. And then a little further down here, it shows that this did achieve what the Soviets were after. It says... In terms of output, this strategy paid off for Soviet managers. Gross yields of raw cotton fiber in the Uzbek SSR saw an increase of 75%. In the Turkmen SSR, the yield skyrocketed an amazing 217% in the same 25-year span. So you can see why the Soviet managers kept this exploitative practice going. It was paying big dividends with lucrative cotton production. They were dramatically increasing their production. And just as a side note, one of the big reasons that cotton production was so lucrative for the Soviet Union is because they actually forced their citizens to pick it with what was basically slave labor. I quoted Ruel Hanks at the start of the show, 
and he lived in this area in the early 1990s. And in one of the articles that he wrote on this topic, he wrote, The Soviets had few mechanical cotton harvesters even well into the 1990s, so most of the crop was picked by hand. But there was also a shortage of farm labor, so groups of urban dwellers were dragooned into spending several weeks on collective farms performing the backbreaking labor of picking cotton. And then Professor Hanks here, he talks about one year when he was actually teaching at a college in what is today Uzbekistan. And one day, none of his students showed up. So he asked around, you know, talked to some of the administrators about it, and he found out that the students would all be gone for several weeks picking cotton. And then he writes, My students returned after three weeks with their hands bloodied and quite eager to take their places in the classroom. Only a few were able to bribe the appropriate officials and avoid this, quote, patriotic duty. So just a bit of a tangent there, but I think it's fascinating history. You know, this was not the 17 or 1800s with people in South Carolina being forced to pick cotton. This was the 1980s and 90s, just 30 years ago. And the people of the Soviet Union and the former Soviet Union were made to spend a portion of each year doing this backbreaking labor. And if you look at the photos, you also see that even young children, many of them look to be as young as seven or eight, were made to put in long days on these Central Asian cotton farms. So it's no surprise that this white gold was making a considerable amount of money for the Soviets and the post-Soviet governments. They used forced labor, and they were also forcing the water, forcing it away from the RLC. So the RLC shrunk rapidly during these years. From 1961 to 1970, its level fell about 8 inches per year. But that was just the start. During the 1970s, it lost an average of 22 inches per year. And then as the 1980s began, it continued losing more and more water. And in 1987, it split in two. Two separate bodies of water, which came to be called the North Arl and the South Arl Sea. And around this time is when many of the very haunting photographs started to emerge of ships mostly fishing ships, they had failed to move fast enough to outrun the evaporation. And so the water vanished beneath them. And so these photos show graveyards of ships, dozens and dozens of large vessels just on the sandy grounds of what had become a desert. These trawlers just sat there rusting under the relentless sun and collapsing in on themselves. So that was in 1987 that the Arl split in two, and then the situation remained dire, and by 1997, it had split into four separate lakes. The South Arl had further divided into the eastern and western basins, and then you had the North Arl Sea and the much smaller Barsakalemes Lake. So the one massive Arl Sea had split into four, and the surface area of these four combined was about 10% of the Arl's original size. 
And here's a number that's really stunning to me. The water level had fallen 72 feet. 72 feet. So before the predatory irrigation, the RLC had been about the size of West Virginia. But in the late 1990s, if you put those four lakes together, their combined surface area was around the size of Delaware. So it was decimated. No large body of water in modern history has ever vanished at a rate like this. And the waters that remained had become far saltier than they had historically been. Previously, the RL had about 10 grams of salt per liter. That's less than a third of the salinity level of ocean water. But by 2003, the southern lakes had a salinity of more than 70 grams per liter. That's double that of average ocean water. And then the North Arl was even worse. Up there, the water had about 100 grams of salt per liter, three times saltier than an ocean. These were massive increases in the levels of salt, and this meant that the freshwater fish that had once thrived in the RLC could no longer survive. Dozens of species died, and the majority of plants in the lake also died. And a great number of birds and mammal species that had lived in the area also disappeared. So the waters were dead in many places, and the land that remained where the waters evaporated turned mostly into a desert. This was stunning desiccation and destruction that had happened in just a few decades. As I said, no large body of water in modern history has ever disappeared at that kind of rate. And it also destroyed the local economy. The towns that had once been bustling fishing centers were suddenly no longer even on the Arles shores. The Arles retreat meant that they were many miles away from the water, over 100 miles from the remaining water in many cases. So those towns emptied out. The people that did remain did the best they could with salt harvesting or raising camels, or they tried to find jobs related to tourism with the small number of people who traveled there to see the graveyards of ships in other parts of this magnificent desolation. But the majority of them left, and those that did remain were suffering all kinds of health problems. This was mainly because as the sea receded, it left about 20,000 square miles of seabed that was choked with salt. And in many places, this land was also poisoned by DDT and pesticides and other chemicals that were brought in by runoff from farms. So these are serious contaminants. And since the receding waters left such a fine sand behind, the wind would blow all of these contaminants hundreds of miles. The Scientific American wrote about the problems that resulted from this back in 2008. It says, Local populations suffer from high levels of respiratory illnesses, throat and esophageal cancer, and digestive disorders caused by breathing and ingesting salt-laden air and water. Liver and kidney ailments as well as eye problems, are common. End quote. And then there are also sky-high rates of jaundice and hepatitis A in the area, and infant mortality was close to 100. So that means out of every 1,000 live births, 100 of the babies died. 
So some really appalling figures there, since the people were being poisoned by their air and water. So all of this shows that an environmental disaster can also become an economic disaster and a health crisis. That's what happened as a result of the Soviet destruction of the ROC. And that was the shape it was in when Ruel Hanks and other experts recognized it as the greatest human-induced ecological catastrophe in history. It was an extreme catastrophe brought about by the extreme greed of a totalitarian government. But this story does not end with the totalitarian Soviet Union destroying the ROC. When the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan became autonomous nations. And at that time, what was left of the ROC was divided by the border that was drawn between these two countries. The South ROC fell about half inside the territory of Uzbekistan, and the other half of it, along with the North RL, was in the territory of Kazakhstan. So for the first few years of their independence, little changed with the degradation of the RLC. These nations kept up the predatory irrigation, and they kept using all the devastating uh, pesticides and fertilizers, many of which are actually illegal. But in Kazakhstan, the leadership soon admitted the colossal damage that had been done to the RL, and they tried to reverse it. In the early 1990s, the Kazakhs built a large earthen dike to prevent outflow of water to the areas where it would rapidly evaporate. This measure was small-scale and imperfect, but it did raise the water levels of the North RLC by a modest amount, and salinity levels began to fall. So it looked promising, but in 1999 there was a breach of this dike, and it resulted in the collapse of the whole thing. So all the gains were lost, but hope was not lost. This effort showed the Kazakhs that the water level could be improved and that other positive trends would follow. So Kazakhstan, along with the World Bank, decided to build another dike, this time a more resilient and a more expensive one. They called it the Coke Arl Dam. It was eight miles long and included a gated concrete dam. And in the year 2005, it was completed. There were also major improvements made around this time to the irrigation works on the Sear River. And those improvements increased its flow. And this all worked together to bring the North Arles water level up. Just eight months after the dam was completed, the water level was six feet higher. So that increased the surface area by 18%. And it led to a steady drop in salinity. The water kept on rising, and soon many freshwater fish species were reintroduced, and about 20 of them began thriving. And other aspects of the ecosystem were bouncing back right along with those fish. By 2016, the improvements were stark. At that time, the French photographer and writer Didier Bizet traveled to the North Arles, and he spent some time in the village of Tastubek and in the city of Aralsk. And he wrote, The water is back. It's like a fairy tale. Suddenly, in the RLC, life is coming back.
And around the time that Bizet wrote that, it wasn't just the fish that were returning, but also the people. Local media reported in 2017 that more than 5,000 people had returned to this area. And there's also a plan in place now for the areas where the water is not expected to return, at least not anytime soon. The Astana Times wrote last June about a project now underway to plant a resilient kind of tree on this land. And they aim to cover about 4,000 square miles with this tree. So it's a very ambitious project. This area was previously underwater, so it's the salt and chemical-laden soil that's causing so many health problems in the area. But they've found that the saxol trees will take root in this soil, and then they prevent the bulk of the dust and salt and chemicals from being blown away. The latest data from Kazakhstan's Ministry of Ecology, Geology, and Natural Resources shows that 1,040 square miles have already been planted with saxol trees, and it's making noticeable improvements to the local air quality. The BBC wrote a little bit about this turnaround recently. This is in an article called The Country That Brought a Sea Back to Life. Part of it says, The return of the North Aral Sea has fueled a revival of the fishing industry in Aralsk. In 2006, the annual fish catch totaled just 1,300 tons. By 2016, the Aralsk Fish Inspection Unit recorded 7,106 tons of fish as freshwater species have returned, including pike, perch, breams, asp, and catfish." End quote. So those are economically significant stocks of fish, and the yields have continued to increase in the years since then. National Geographic reported that the 2018 catch limits were set at 8,200 tons. So that's a 600% increase from 2006. Those are some major improvements, serious gains that have been made in the North Arl. And it is inspiring to see a big part of it coming back to life, like a fairy tale, as Bizet wrote. But even with these revival efforts, it's still a far cry from what the Arl Sea was before it became victim to the worst ecological disaster in human history. The overwhelming majority of what was an oasis of life just a few decades ago is still desert, wasted and polluted dead land. And a great deal of the earth is like this. Almost one-third of the world's landmass is desert, according to Universe Today. And much of that comes about naturally, but a great deal of it is the result of exploitative human activity, like the extreme irrigation and pollution that killed most of the RLC. But in either case, there's just so much unlivable wasteland on Earth. Millions of square miles of it. But the Bible tells us that a time is on the horizon when these areas will be healed. Isaiah 35 verses 1 and 2 say, The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice even with joy and singing. That's the Revised Standard Version. And that's describing 
an astounding rejuvenation that will happen, not just to a few hundred square miles, but to all of the deserts and solitary places. Isaiah 41, 19 talks a little bit more about this. It says, I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the deserts the cypress, the plain, and the pine together. End quote. It's great to see those small Saxol trees that Kazakhstan is planting in parts of the dead Aral Basin. That's some exciting progress, but the cedars and acacias and myrtle and olive trees that Isaiah wrote about are larger. And these trees, this implies just a very lush and diverse ecosystem. And the deserts of the world will be verdant with these. The late educator, Herbert W. Armstrong, wrote about this future global greening project in his booklet called The Wonderful World Tomorrow, What It Will Be Like. He wrote, Can you imagine such a fabulous scene? Deserts becoming green, fertile garden lands of trees, shrubs, bubbling springs and brooks. Mountains brought low and made inhabitable. Think about the vast wastes of this earth. Does it sound incredible? Unbelievable that God could make them blossom like a rose? Why should it? That's a great question, really. Why should it sound unbelievable that the wastelands can be restored? A group of people in Kazakhstan, with a relatively simple dam project and some hard work and some saxol trees, they're already reviving a considerable area of the North Aral Sea. It is coming back to life. So how much more could the God who created Earth and its ecosystems and rivers and lakes and seas and trees, how much more will he be able to do when he sets his hand and works through his government to restore the wastes? Well, we are coming to the end of this episode of The Sun Also Rises. Please send any questions or comments you may have to tsar at kpcg.fm. And if you don't have a copy of Mr. Armstrong's booklet, The Wonderful World Tomorrow, What It Will Be Like, you can take a look at our show notes, and there's a link there to order your free copy. No shipping charges or obligations of any kind, so please pick one of those up if you'd like to. And we'll leave you today with these words from an article by Philip Micklin and Nicolay Aladdin. They wrote, The oral story illustrates the enormous capacity of modern technological societies to wreak havoc on the natural world and their own people. And yet, the story also demonstrates the great potential for restoring the environment. We hope the lessons learned will be heeded elsewhere.